Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. Aha! 1 through 4, not 14. We would have had a, a verses 1 through 4. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much, more, in much conflict. For our exhortations did not come from error or uncleanliness, but it was in deceit, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted by, with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. May the Lord add his blessing this morning as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name. As we come to this part of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we find an emphasis on pure motives. Pure motives. Do you know anyone who has pure motives? Like our politicians. Well, let's go on to another subject. How about businessmen? Do all businessmen have pure motives? How about all doctors, or auto mechanics, or TV preachers, or local pastors even for that matter? How about scientists? Do scientists have pure motives? Are they really interested in scientific facts always? Well, it's interesting. They say that the explosion of Mount St. Helens was God's gift to creation scientists. I visited there and I was surprised to see that after that explosion in 1980 and they've been, uh, the scientists have been examining things that happened during and after the explosion, we went to the visitor center and on the wall there there was a plaque that explained different things and one of the things it said was that the erosion that took place when the water, when, when the mudslide or, or uh, avalanche of materials came down the mountain and went into Spirit Lake and it splashed the water out over the sides of the lake and it went right down the mountain really fast and mud and everything, it caused erosion and the forming of a canyon that they would have thought would have taken thousands or perhaps millions of years to do and it happened in moments and not only was the erosion like like what happened at Grand Canyon is that's what it was it was like that not only did that happen 
but they also saw that the material had formed in stratus, in layers, just like at the Grand Canyon, again, that they thought took millions of years to do. And then they went and they looked, I just learned about this recently, they examined over the years all the logs because the water went out of Spirit Lake, went up the hillside, knocked down all these primitive logs that were there. What do they call that kind of uh, forest? It's a... Not petrified yet, no. Before that it was a... Uh, like a virgin forest or something like that. With, you know, where the trees have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. It knocked them all down and then it pulled them down into the lake. And the lake was covered with these logs of the trees that were snapped off, you know, and, and, or, or torn off of their roots. And they were just laying on the surface of the water. Well, the interesting thing was that they said, now we can observe what happens to logs when they're in this condition. And getting waterlogged and settling to the bottom and all those things. And they noticed that those who had the root ball on them still, that was heavier and more dense, so it sunk down faster, and so the trees went down in and stood at the bottom of the lake like this. And because some trees have more resin in them than others, the resin keeps the water out. And so the trees with more resin would float longer, the sediment would build up, and so when they went down, they were at a different level than the others. Like this. Now, and then the petrification, petrifying took place. And they found out that they, what they thought when uh, the uh, scientists made their theories of how petrified logs happen, they said they would take, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years to petrify. These were petrifying in one year. And the different layers uh, took away an explanation that scientists had come up with in other parts of the world when they found different levels of trees. They thought it was over tens of thousands of years where a tree would be in a place and get petrified and then there would be a forest, I mean a, a sediment, and, and then a new forest would build up years later at a different level and it would take hundreds of thousands or millions of years to have these different levels. And in fact, a creation scientist took the information from St. Helens and went over to the petrified forest of Yellowstone National Park. And he got permission to dig up around the, the root balls of the petrified trees that were there, that were still standing. And what he found was they didn't have a root system. They had basically the same situation as the trees that had been knocked down and then put on into the lake and then settled down standing up. And they went and examined the kind of material that was in the petrified trees and the sediment around it and they came up with uh, much data that showed that what happened in Yellowstone was just what happened at St. Helens and it was not the way the scientists thought before. And so they took the plaque that was at the petrified forest that said that this forest was formed 
over 22 different layers and explosions because they were at these different heights and that it took 50 million years to do it. They took that plaque away because of Mount St. Helens. I wonder if they've taken similar plaques away at the Grand Canyon. Are scientists always interested in the facts when they don't go along with their pet theory? It doesn't seem so, does it? Otherwise, we wouldn't be hearing these things on TV and when the scientists are quoted about this and that, they wouldn't be quoting it the way they do if they really had pure motives. All right, so people have trouble with pure motives. What about God? Does God have pure motives? Oh, you know, too often we're ready to say yes right away. But what about Job? What about Job? Some people reading that story, they say, well, you know, the reason Job went through all of the trouble that he did, the reason God allowed Satan to to destroy his life and his family was because God had a point to prove and so he used Job to do it. Well, is that a very good... Is that pure motives to use somebody else to prove something for yourself? To defend yourself in, in that arena? Well, let's stop and, you know, it's always good to ask more questions when you come to a difficult thing. Let's ask this question. What would have happened to Job and his family if God didn't prove his point? What if God did not prove to the universe that he was a ruler who was ruling on the basis of unselfish love? alone and not through bribery or force what if God never proved that point could sin be removed from the universe if God doesn't prove that point couldn't happen then could heaven ever begin never could could Job and his family enjoy eternal life if God didn't prove his point they couldn't. And so what's more important, Job's life in this life or Job's eternal life and his family in a heavenly kingdom? Does God have pure motives? I believe he does. In Daniel chapter 5, let's turn there a moment. We're going to come back here to 1 Thessalonians, so hold your place. But I want to look at just one simple thing in the fifth chapter of Daniel. We're going to look at just the first four verses. Just the first four verses of Daniel chapter 5. It says, Belshazzar, he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar uh, gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his, his concubines might drink from them. 
And it says, so they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So here was a proud king who was taking these trophies that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. Usually, in other countries, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the country, he would take an idol of the god of that country and he would bring it back to his trophy room in, in Babylon. And it would show that, Babel, that Nebuchadnezzar and the gods of Babylon were stronger than the gods of that country. But when he came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple of Jehovah, or Yahweh, and he looked for the, for the image of Yahweh, what did he find? No images. So could he bring back an a, a image of, of Yahweh, or Jehovah, to the house of his God to show off that he was more powerful than, than the God of the Jews? He couldn't do it. Isn't that ironic? But he decided if he couldn't get an image, he would take the gold and silver vessels that were used in the sacrificial system there in the temple. And so that's what these were. They were dedicated to only temple use for the God of the Jews. And so now the grandson, years later, he's having this big party and he's trying to show off how wonderful he is and his, how great his kingdom is. And he brings in these vessels. And does he use them to honor the God of the Jews? No. Instead, he uses it to despise the God of the Bible, the God of heaven. He uses it for his own pleasure and his own glory. Now, what about, what about God's trophies? You see, God is the king of kings, and he has trophies. Do you know what are the trophies of our God? We are. We are his trophy. We get to show how great the glory of God is, how great is his grace and his love, what great things those elements of God's character, what they can do, what they can accomplish to take sinners and turn them into saints. To take the children of darkness and turn them into the children of light. We are his trophy. Now what is he going to do with us? Is he going to put us in the treasure house that he has? Yes. Do you know where that treasure house is? The New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. And he's going to put us there for his glory. But is it, is it impure motives? Is it doing so that he can look great? Or is he going to do it to honor us? And in a sense, it's a combination. You can't separate the two, can you? He wants to honor us. We are the trophy. And we will be honored to be such. Now think about Job. Let's go back to him. When we all get to heaven, we go to the New Jerusalem. The people are assembled there from the history of the world. And we're, we see different people like Moses and David and so on. 
Do you suppose anybody is want, going to want to go to Job to say thank you for what he went through? Will anybody? Anybody here? Yes. Yes. There will be a multitude of people who want to go to Job because Job's was one of the first books written in the Bible. And how many people have struggled with the question, why does God allow suffering? And how many people have been helped by the book of Job? And they'll want to go and seek out Job and say, Job, thank you. You went through this. You went through more than I ever had to go through. And when I was in trouble, I went to your book and the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my heart and showed me what you went through and showed me how you stood fast and how the Lord gave you strength. And the Lord gave me strength from that. Will Job be honored? Oh, I think he'll have great honor. And it will go on and on through eternity as people continue to come up to him and say, thank you, your story helped me. That's what God wants to do with us. He wants to increase our joy. He wants to honor us. And here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, look in chapter 1, verse 7. We've studied this before, but let me look at, look at it with you again. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 7 so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. So you see, he's honoring these people. He's saying, you people in Thessalonica, you're believers, but you're also examples to others because of the extent of your belief, your faith. And so God has pure motive. Now what about Paul? Well, let's look at Paul's uh, story here in chapter 2 where he's talking about the pure motives. And in uh, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read my, uh, from my version. The version that I've chosen is the New Living Translation. And verses 1 and 2 are this way. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you. And how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Now there are some key words in these two verses that I'd like us to notice. One is failure. Another is suffered. Courage. Opposition. And good news. Let's look at those a moment. Failure. Have you ever felt like a failure? Have you ever felt like a failure as a Christian, as a child of God? I know I have. I have stumbled and fallen and, and done things I know I shouldn't have done and felt like a failure. And I've had, in serving God, I felt like a failure. We had, we went, we, we um, were asked or assigned to the church in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And before we had come, the church had planned for an evangelistic crusade, and they invited Joe Malashenko from the Voice of Prophecy evangelism team. Anybody of you remember Joe Malashenko? Maybe some of you do. He had a deep bass voice, and he could sing and everything. Well, 
He was, he had been an evangelist for, I don't know, 40 some years. And this was going to be his last evangelistic seer. And so uh, they, so they had invited him and we did so much preparation work. We did lots of things. But do you know what, I'm going to make a long story short, at the end of the whole series, not one person was baptized. Poor Joe. That was, that was hard. He'd never had that happen. And I felt like a, a, uh, a failure to not do more to prepare things so that that could be more of a success. And I could tell you stories about other places, similar things. It became obvious I do not have the gift of evangelism. I'll have to say that. But does that make me a failure? It doesn't. And you see, we don't have to be failures. We don't have to regard ourselves as failures because our trusting is not in ourselves. Our trust is in, in Jesus, in Christ. He is our strength. He is our success. Now, what about this word courage then? Do any of us need courage? We all need courage. Where do we get it from? From the good news, from the gospel. How about suffering? Do we suffer? We all suffer. But we don't give up because the good news is still true. It's still true. Now let's look at verses 3 through 11. It says here in the New Living Translation, so you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we, were, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead... We were like children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives also. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses. And so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Well, Paul really made some claims here, didn't he? He claimed to have pure motives. Verse 4, he says that he was approved by God, not man. He came to please God, not people. He was not seeking money or flattery or praise, the praise of men. But he was serving out of true love like a father, like a mother. In verse 10, he says he was devout. He was honest, faultless. And in verse 9, he says he was working day and night so he wouldn't be a burden. Now, do any of you, can you say that you have known a Christian leader like that? Some of you maybe have. I have. 
The pastor who baptized me was like this. Pure motives. And that left an impression on me, I'll have to say. I was a teenager. And it left an impression on me that somebody could serve this way. And later on, there was a preacher named Robert Whelan. We had him in our home two times for a period of a week at a time. And we saw the purity of his life and his motives. And it was a blessing to see somebody who was so dedicated. It makes an impression. It changes people's lives when we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and purify our motives. In verse 12, it says, We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Did Paul want little things for the people? He wanted great things. He wanted God's kingdom, God's glory for them. So he urged them. He encouraged them. He worked for them. He wanted the best for them because he loved them. Now isn't that great motivation to serve and preach and teach and lead? In 1 Corinthians 13, let me read it from the New Living, it says, for just the first few verses. 1 Corinthians 13. If I preach with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but, a, but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all its mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. And isn't that the truth? Now verse 13, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 it says, Therefore we never stop thanking God when you, re when you received his message from us. You didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. So notice just two things here. First, they accepted the gospel as the very word of God. Have you? Have you accepted the good news of God and His love of Jesus and His sacrifice as the very Word of God to you? And secondly, then that Word continues to work in us, to do a work in us. Now what is that work that it does in us? It shows us Jesus. Jesus said these scriptures testify of, of me, meaning Himself, right? Right? They all point us to Jesus. And that's the work that we need. To be connected to Him. What was that word we used in Sabbath school class from John 13? Abide as the branch in the vine. Stay connected. Live in Christ and Christ living in you. That's the whole thing. That's what the Bible does. That's a continuing work. And as Christ is in us, will there be love in us? 
Yes, because Christ is God and God is love. So what does that look like? There was a couple who feel compelled to be missionaries. And so they applied and they were accepted and they were sent down to Honduras to an island just off the coast of Honduras. Now they found there, as they set up their, their living, found a place to live, and began their work to, to do mission work there, they found that food was very expensive there. It's an island. You know, often food is expensive on an island. And they didn't have money to buy some of the better foods, so they had to kind of scrounge around for food. Well, they found that in the forest nearby them, there was a papaya tree that was free for the taking. And so they started to learn to eat papaya. They learned to eat papaya ten different ways. And so they're surviving on papaya and a few other things they could get. Well, one day there were two believers who were traveling through and stopped at their area and they welcomed them home and they prepared a meal and they found out during the meal that this, these two people had not eaten for much of anything for the last few days and they were so hungry. So when the wife found out about that, she went back in the kitchen while the people were eating what food she had made for the meal and she started making some more food. In fact, she used up all the little amount of food they had in the house, every scrap of it they, she used to finish. And, they, and the two visitors ate it all. I mean, they just devoured it. And so when they said their goodbyes and, and prayed for them and sent the, the two visitors on their way, the husband and wife looked in the cupboard and it was truly bare. And they wondered, what are they going to do? Because they didn't have any money to replenish the pantry. So they prayed and they said, Lord, you know how to take care of us. We're leaving it in your hands. Well, before they went to bed, they got a call. They got a call from down at the harbor. Now, down at the harbor, there were some visitors who were there on a boat. You know how people travel through the Caribbean and, and through that part of the world. <coughs> and this, these people were on a boat there. And when the missionaries were down at the harbor one day, they struck up a conversation, made a little friendship, and uh, ex exchanged information. Well, the call was from this, cu this couple that were on the boat, and they were ready to go home, and they were going to be sailing the next morning and heading straight home. And they had bought a whole lot of supplies, and it was way more than they needed, and they would end up throwing it away. So they said, please bring a pickup truck. Now, they didn't have a pickup truck, but the neighbor did. So they got the neighbor, and they went down with the pickup truck. And the boat people surely had so much food. And they loaded up that pickup truck. And when they brought it home and put it in the pantry, they looked. And some of the foods were the things that they had been craving for months. And they couldn't have afforded, even if they were available on the island. Some American foods, you know, that just weren't there. And so only did they have more than enough, they had some things that they were so happy to have as luxury food. Now, where are you in the story? Where are you in the story? Are you the couple that are down to nothing? And you're wondering where is the next meal going to come to, but you share what little you have with somebody else? Are you the cup, the two visitors, the strangers that came by and needed, they were so hungry they needed somebody to help them.
because there was nothing that they could do. They didn't have a home there and they needed somebody to give something. Or you the strangers on the boat and the Lord has given you more than enough and you are ready to be used to help somebody else in their time of need and to answer their prayer. Where are you? Put what you have, whatever it is, whether it's a big amount or whether it's something almost nothing, something tiny, put it in the hands of God and see what God does with you and what you have. Invite him to make divine appointments for you in daily life and see how he leads you to someone in need and gives you the right words, the right things to help the person in need. He will make divine appointments for you. And he will use you with pure motives because he wants to trust you to serve him and to serve him with pure motives. But only he can do that. You can trust him to do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do trust you. We trust you with what we've seen in the scriptures. We trust you with what we've seen in our lives as we have put our needs before you and the needs of others and we've seen you do remarkable things. But we want to trust you more. And we want to trust you more consistently so that day by day you can make divine appointments for us. And you can help us to be attentive to noticing when these appointments happen so that so that we can lean on you to give us the right words and the right things that we need and that those people need. What a wonderful thing it is to know you and to serve you. For you are great in every way. And we praise you today in Jesus' name. Let's turn to our closing hymn number 304. Faith of our fathers, number 304. Let's...
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.